Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks. It really helps. As you may recall from last week, Joe Martin found out that Chrissy Kittredge knew more about Judith Dalton's disappearance than anyone realized. Mr. Kittredge made some calls and was able to assemble the men from Grover's Notch into a search party to look for Judith Dalton. Greg Vivian broke into Hunter Langtree's house, high on drugs and covered in blood. Where did the blood come from? Did Greg really hunt and kill a deer out of season? Or did he do something else? Something he can't even remember. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. woke herself with her own screams. She grabbed desperately for the lamp on the bedside table and turned it on. She frantically looked around the room. She was alone. He wasn't there. Shaken and unconvinced that what she had just experienced was a dream, she pulled her knees to her chest and tried to calm herself. She could still feel his dank, clammy hands ripping at her clothes and flesh. She crossed her arms, hugging her own body, rubbing the goose flesh from her upper arms, reassuring herself that her clothes had not been torn nor her flesh lacerated. She shuddered uncontrollably. A stranger seemed to lurk amid the shadows of her sleep, waiting for her in her dimly lit room, trying to catch her unaware. It was only a dream, Anne. That's all it was, she whispered, but she couldn't quite convince herself. It had been too real. The smell of him was still in her nostrils. Her heart was still pounding from his vicious attack and her frenzied struggle to escape. The more she had fought, the closer he had drawn her to him. She had awakened to her own screams, and even now, he seemed reluctant about retreating into the shadows of what she wanted to believe was only a horrible nightmare. She chided herself, You're acting like a child. It was only a bad dream. Even as she said those words, she longed to be held and comforted by her mother and told that everything was all right. But her mother was gone now gone to join her father who had died so long ago. For the first time that she could remember, she felt alone and frightened, so utterly and truly alone. She wiped the tears from her face as she looked slowly around the room 
trying to convince herself that no one was there. The fear and loneliness ebbed, replaced by anger. Anger at herself for losing control and for being unable to put things into proper perspective. Determined now to prove to herself that it had been just another one of her bad dreams, she slipped from her bed and went cautiously from room to room, switching on the lights in each one. As she neared the end of the hallway, ready to descend the staircase to the first floor, she was drawn to the window that overlooked her mother's garden and the road beyond. The outside motion sensor light came on. It illuminated the garden and a portion of the woods just beyond the garden fence. There, just at the outer edge of the garden light, cloaked by the darkness beyond, something moved. Her heart jumped. She looked to the road to see if that truck that had been parked almost out of sight up the road for the last few nights was there, but it wasn't. She looked back to where she'd seen the movement, at the edge of the garden light. But whatever it was, perhaps some animal, it was gone. She backed away from the window and went down the stairs. She entered the living room and immediately switched on the lights. She noticed that the shade on the window that faced the garden was still up. She quickly crossed the room to the window. Her hand reached up mechanically for the shade cord. Before she could pull the shade down, a light rush of wind sent a curtain of autumn leaves into the air. The red, yellow, gold, orange, and yellowish-green leaves lit by the garden light danced around some rising on the gust of air and some falling, but none of them quite touching the ground. She watched in disbelief. It wasn't hard to imagine fairies flying around among them. Eventually, a few fell to the ground and skittered along the lawn, only to be swept up once again and blown forward towards her, striking the storm window, their pointed surfaces creating a pecking sound against the tempered glass. Anne watched apprehensively as the dancing leaves were gathered up into a twisting snake-like mass and pushed toward the window by a stronger gust of wind. The mass rushed forward, hitting the storm window with such a frenetic force that the glass cracked and Anne felt the rest of the house shake from the wind's buffeting. Startled, she jumped back from the window, her heart pounding. A moment later, there was only silence. She moved cautiously forward, looked at the crack in the storm window, and then out at her mother's garden, where the leaves lay scattered and still. She looked beyond to the fence, where she thought she'd seen movement. Her senses were acute. A chill went down her back, and her mouth went dry. That fear she'd felt upon waking from her dream returned. She reached hastily up and quickly pulled the shade down. Cautiously, she entered the dining room, flicking on two lamps. When she entered the kitchen, she turned on the overhead light and sat down at the kitchen table. She realized she was even more frightened now than when she'd awakened from the dream. All you need is a cup of tea, she said to herself. Anne rose from the table and moved across the room to fill the kettle. 
Her hands were shaking so that she almost dropped it. Finally, she managed to fill it and place it on the stove. Just slow down, she said to herself, determined to manage the simple task without dropping anything. You need a tea bag and a cup and saucer. She pulled open the cupboard and took out a cup and saucer, decorated with a rosebud pattern, part of her mother's prized English bone china. The cup wobbled precariously on the saucer. She steadied it with her other hand. She opened a green box on the counter and pulled out a tea bag. When she'd turned on the eye and placed the tea bag in the cup, she sat back down at the table to wait for the kettle to whistle. She leaned forward, placing her elbows on the table and her head in her hands. She heard one of the floorboards squeak, and she looked up. She saw her mother standing in the doorway, smiling. Mom? Anne said as she rose quickly from her seat. She rushed across the room to embrace her. Anne began to sob softly at first as her mother stroked her hair and held her close. I feel so lost. Her sobs became more intense. In between her gasps for breath, Anne's quivering voice continued. I don't have anyone I can talk to. I don't think anyone would understand. Shh, there, there, my little Annie. It's going to be all right. It was only a bad dream, baby. Only a bad dream. But it seems so... Shh, I know, I know. Her mother took her face in her hands and she said, Look at me. Anne stared into her mother's gray eyes. That movement you saw in the garden is dangerous. Be careful. Anne nodded. You're going to be all right. You've always been a strong person. You have to be even stronger now. There might come a time when you want to help, but remember what I told you. Remember what they did to your father, and all he did was try to help. They said he had something to do with that woman's murder. Even after his name was cleared, some people continued to believe that he had something to do with it. They broke his spirit, and he was never the same. So you be careful, Annie. Be careful of what you say or do. I know, Mom. I remember. She drew Anne's face to hers, and Anne closed her eyes. Her mother kissed her forehead and tilted her head up. Anne opened her eyes. But you've always been a very sensible girl. Remember what I always told you. There are no right or wrong decisions. Whatever decision you make, I'll always be proud of you. Your father and I love you dearly. Her mother smiled and kissed her lightly on the lips. They held each other close. A loud whistle escaped from the steam kettle, startling Anne. She jumped. She was still at the kitchen table. Mom, Anne said. She looked around the room, but her mother wasn't there. The whistle from the kettle grew louder. The short, shrill blast from a whistle broke the silence of the cold, crisp night as one of the volunteers came upon the body of the child partially covered by leaves. Over here! Over here! Deputy Johnson screamed. Then his voice trailed away to a whisper. Oh, my God! Joe made his way quickly through the darkened woods, 
pushing through the brush, moving in the direction of his deputy's voice. A few moments later, he saw the bright beams of their lights and reached the spot where his men stood. The scene looked like a stark black-and-white photograph. His single beam held Todd Johnson as he leaned against a birch tree, his back turned away from the small, still form, but his flashlight turned toward the scene. Joe moved his light to the right, finding Maynard Nash standing stock still, his flashlight beam never wavering, trained on the body of the child, his face twisted into a frightening mask like a Middle Ages depiction of a gargoyle Joe had once seen, the similarities all the more apparent because of Maynard's rigid immobility. Finally, it reached the volunteer who had found the child. The man was shaking like someone caught in a sudden blizzard, brought to his knees, his beam of light bouncing erratically over the body of the child. It was one of the worst crime scenes Joe Martin had seen in his 15 years of police work. Judith Dalton's arms were frozen in a defensive position across her head. Their mutilation was so extensive that the flesh and clothing hanging from them seemed to be one. It was as if a madman had taken a knife and slashed her. Joe knelt down beside her. Her head was turned to the side, her face partially obscured by her arms and partially obscured by leaves. He slipped on a latex glove. As Joe gently removed some of the leaves from her face, they crumbled in his hands. What he found beneath sickened him. It was as if a madman had taken a knife and slashed her until she hardly resembled a human being. Joe slowly stood up and sucked in a deep breath of air. Jesus Christ, Sheriff, what's going on? Todd Johnson asked in a hoarse whisper. He had finally turned to face once again the horror of the child's body. His eyes searched Joe's. Suddenly, Todd tilted his head up and fixed his gaze on something behind Joe. Joe turned to see a specter. He hadn't heard Bill Bannister approach. Bill stood there, all the blood drained from his face, staring down at the Dalton girl's body, partially covered with leaves. The muscles in his jaw were tight as he bit down hard on his teeth. His eyes were squinting. He looked at Todd and then back at Joe, and taking several deep breaths, he said, Who could do this to another human being? Who would do this to a child? The crashing of heavy brush turned Joe's attention away from Bill. Joe looked toward the sound. Oh God, oh God, where is she? Daryl Dalton screamed as he stumbled forward through the bushes, falling to the ground. He raised his head. His eyes were wild, devoid of all reason. He crawled toward his little girl's body like a malfunctioning wind-up toy. Bill Bannister knelt down beside him and held back the 165-pound man. Let me go! Let me go! Daryl Dalton screamed as he tried to lurch forward. Daryl, we can't do that. It's a crime scene, Bill explained. I've got to go to my Judith, my baby. Let me go! Daryl replied, twisting and turning to escape Bill's grasp. Suddenly, he stopped, his eyes seeming to really focus on what was left of his daughter's small body, bathed in the harsh white beams of the flashlights. Oh, my God! 
He let out an anguished scream that erupted into a crazed howl. It sounded as if someone was ripping his soul from his body. We have to preserve the crime scene, Daryl, Bill explained calmly. We have to if we're going to catch the bastard. Daryl's torso straightened up and his head bent back toward the dark night sky. My baby, my Judith, he screamed. He fell forward, his head buried between his forearms, and began to sob. Joe knew there was nothing he could say to Daryl Dalton. There was never anything anyone could say at a moment like this. Bill, why don't you take Daryl back to the cruiser? Call Eve and tell her to contact the state police. Have them send their forensic team out here ASAP, then drive Daryl home. Joe turned to Todd. I want you and Maynard to tape off this area. Get all the volunteers out of the woods. I don't want anyone in this area destroying evidence. Joe nodded in the volunteers' direction. Get someone to take William home. He doesn't look capable of driving. Todd nodded. As Bill reached down to help Daryl up, he quickly pulled his hand back in pain. Damn it, Bill exclaimed. He looked down. A smooth brown maple leaf had pierced the side of his hand. Are you all right? Joe asked. Yeah, Bill replied, obviously distracted. There was a puzzled look on his face as he examined the leaf that had pierced his hand. He carefully pulled it out and held it between his thumb and forefinger and rubbed it. It feels smooth. It feels like... Suddenly, it crumbled between his fingers. I'll be damned! Bill said. Joe looked at him, puzzled at Bill's fascination with the leaf. Any day now, Bill, Joe replied. He could hear a hint of exasperation in his own voice as he said the words. Bill glanced up at Joe. His expression changed. His mouth closed firmly, producing a tight, straight line, and his eyes narrowed. I'm going, he said gruffly and started off through the woods, headed toward the cruiser with Daryl Dalton. And now, a preview of next week's episode. Following the discovery of Judith Dalton's mutilated remains, Barry Benoit calls and leaves an urgent message for Greg with Hunter Langtree. What did Barry tell Hunter and how will it affect her already broken relationship with Greg? If you'd like to get the next free episode early, please consider becoming a Patreon member. It only costs $3 a month to join. That's less than a cup of coffee from you-know-who to enjoy access to compelling original storytelling. That's not the only benefit of being one of our Patreon members. In addition to early access to free episodes, only our Patreon members will have access to each new weekly episode of the second half of each book after the free portion of the book is over. And that's not all. Our Patreon members will also be treated to our periodic commentary, as well as having access to the entire back catalog of our episodes as our podcast goes forward. So please... Click the link in the show description now if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member. Also, please note that you can follow us on Twitter at sdreadfuls. 
We will use Twitter to make any announcements concerning the podcast, like letting you know when the free portion of a book is about to end and when a new book will begin. We'd like to thank you for listening to Serial Dreadfuls. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.